Hello and welcome to True to the Bible podcast with Hunter Davis. Thanks for joining us for this lesson in our series on the book of Philippians called The Heart of Philippians. In this lesson, Adam Barnes, our teacher, will be giving us an overview of Philippians and an introduction, going over key people and ideas, location, geography, and timeline in the book of Philippians. As we look at the book of Philippians throughout these next weeks, we'll see a lot of practical things that we can take and we can learn and use in our own life. Remember the goal of our study here is to take these things and understand the book of Philippians so that we can apply them in our lives daily. Well, thanks again for joining us for this lesson in True to the Bible podcast. We hope that you enjoy this lesson. All right, let's go ahead and get started. My name is Adam Barnes. Uh, You are enrolled and participating in the Philippians class this semester. I'm excited for you. I've prayed for this class for a long time. I actually wrote this study before COVID uh, with the hopes of teaching it. And then I posted it last semester, and Dave's the only person that signed up for it. <laughs> so I told JB, we better take a rain check because this is because of COVID. I didn't know if it was because of COVID or because nobody wanted to take the class. But uh, I'm glad that you guys are here. I think that this is going to be, I hope that it's going to be as impactful for you to study as it was for me to study it. Hunter at camp I think three years ago now taught Philippians and before camp he challenged me he said hey we're gonna do Philippians we've got two or three months before camp starts let's do a challenge and so let's see if you can get the most of it memorized before camp so we started from verse one and tried to see how much that we could get memorized before camp and what that started for me was a love for this book because it's the happiest of books it gives an appropriate and practical perspective for Christians. Uh, I, I listened to one person say that if you're struggling with depression or something's got you down in life, then the prescription should be a dose of Philippians once a day for the rest of your life. Because it is. It, it helps you frame your perspective appropriately. It helps you look at things through a different lens. We're going to see here in just a second that there's not just one thing. There's not, you know, a lot of times people say, well, Galatians was written because of this, or Ephesians was written. Philippians does have a purpose, but it's all of these micro themes that pour directly into what it is. We're going to see just general encouragement for us as we live our Christian lives. Uh, Like I mentioned earlier, it frames an appropriate perspective uh, from which we can look at uh, the lens of life through. There's rejoicing regardless of circumstances, which is difficult. And we're going to see why with Paul. Probably one of the things that's not talked about enough in churches is humility. It's a big deal. Because with humility, you can't have unity, which is an even bigger deal. Uh, and when you have appropriate unity, when the members of the body are all functioning together appropriately, you're going to get effective participation of the body. Not just the individual members within the body, but the body as a whole engaging with the world appropriately. And that's a problem. That's a problem that you guys have seen in your lifetime of the church and a problem that I've seen in my lifetime. Um, so let's pray, and then we'll, still, we'll just get right into it. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this day so much. We thank you for your son Jesus, for his perfect life, his death, and his resurrection. And we thank you that he offers us eternal life uh, simply on the basis of faith in you for it. Lord, uh, we just lift up this class and just pray that the Holy Spirit would move as we study your scripture this semester that we would be encouraged where we need to be encouraged and that we would be convicted where we need to be convicted with the goal of making the appropriate application towards those ends. Uh, We'll just lift up each of the individual people here that they would be uh, built up and encouraged 
and based on your word, based on the truth that they see in your word that they would make and that I would make appropriate application of it as we go throughout the semester and for the rest of our lives. And we pray that you would help us to do it when it's hard, uh, when we don't want to and we're lazy, uh, when we face opposition, uh, when our circumstances uh, are against us. Uh, Lord, we just pray that you would help us to keep the appropriate perspectives we move throughout this life uh, so that one day when we stand before you, we'll hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. We ask these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. I'll pick up your introduction and frame of mind exercises later. But, um, Philippians some of you may know, some of you may not know, was written to the town of Philippi, uh, which is in Macedonia. It'd be northeast of Greece. Uh, Philippi sat on a, a road we'll talk about here in a second called the Via Ignatia. It was a trade route that helped them go from Rome to Asia. And so it was popular in that way. Uh, it was named after Phil, or the region was named after Philip of Macedon, which is Alexander the Great's father. And obviously, Philip was named after him. So, uh, it's an important town because it, it had Roman citizenship. Uh, even though it was apart from Italy and set all the way uh, on the other side of, not the continent, but almost, uh, it was, it was a, considered a Roman colony. And so, the people there enjoyed the privileges that the Romans enjoyed in Italy. And that's going to play into what we're going to see here in Acts 16 because Paul was a Roman citizen. He was a Jew with Roman citizenship. And I put this little excerpt here. Let's read through it real quick. It says, A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When he, Paul, had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So putting out from Troas, we uh, ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in this city for some days. So we're going to talk about that in just a second. But this is an important study of Acts 16 because we're going to see that on his second missionary journey, the Holy Spirit directly intervened. He called Paul, as we see here, to go... Paul, what we don't see here is Paul was trying to go other places. And he said, no, 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 God prevented me from going there. So Paul turned another direction. He said, no, 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 the Holy Spirit kept us from going there. And then that night he had a vision to go here. We see that the Holy Spirit directly intervened to take Paul to Philippians. And so we're going to see this. Um, so before we get to it, let's just look at some goals, uh, some things that we're going to cover. The goal of this series, so when I say this series, I mean all 14 lessons. The first one is that we gain a comprehensive understanding of Philippians. We're going to get both a broad, the big picture, overarching lens uh, perspective, and then we're also going to get very, very narrow and direct. One of the good things about this book is it's only 104 verses. It's small, four chapters, and in a 14-week study, we can get very, very specific. On a Sunday morning when this is taught, you can't get deep into it because you have so many people in so short of a time to cover it. But when we're here, we can dig deep and get really as far, and we're going to. We're going to get really deep into it. And part of what I want you guys to do is I want you to see Philippians, and I want you to see the people of Philippi the way that Paul saw them. Because he had a unique and special relationship with them. You get a different feeling from reading this, from reading his words to the Philippians than you do to anybody else. There was a special connection and relationship that they had. 
So I want you to see what he sees for them, and I want you to feel what he feels for them. His desire for these people, which is really God's desire for them, and uh, by application, his desire for us. The second thing is to gain accurate knowledge and understanding of the practical truths in Philippians. As I mentioned, it's an important study, and it's God's inspired word through Paul, and it's especially relevant for our lives today. It's one of the most practical books. There's a ton of stuff that you can look at this, and there's direct instructions, there's direct encouragement, and there's direct exhortation and admonishment that we can take and apply today. A lot of times you read the word, and you're like, man, it's hard for me to apply. Philippians is not hard to apply. It's very direct and very in your face. And the third thing is to make appropriate life applications based on these truths. And this is a verse, or this book has several verses that are sometimes taken out of context. One of the most famous verses is Philippians 4.13, that I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You can find that just about any Christian athlete's cleat on so many tattoos and so many different things. And really what they're talking about, and we're going to see it, it really has nothing to do with that as much as it has to do with uh, being content in your circumstances. And when you have the appropriate perspective, regardless of your circumstances, and you understand God's provision for you, uh, provisionally, meaning money, food, water, clothing, shelter, you can do all things through him when you have that right perspective. So there's a whole bunch of those things. So I want to make appropriate life applications based on the things that we see here. So the goal of this specific lesson is to gain an overview of Philippians as a whole, and we're going to take into consideration the key people. That's the who, who's in this book. The ideas and themes, that's the what, that's this type of stuff. The location and geography, because that's important. Every single time that you look at, especially one of Paul's epistles, it's normally named after a person or a place, mainly a place. Romans, obviously that was went to Rome. Uh, Corinthians, first and Corinthians, that was written to Corinth. Galatians was the... Galatia region, same thing with Philippians. It's important to know what was what was going on here, which is why I wanted to start in Acts 16 to see when Paul was in Philippi. And then we're going to just cover the first two verses of chapter 1. So we're going to go pretty quickly. Uh, this week, I'll just tell you straight up, this week's a lot of information. Um, there's going to be much more theology, doctrine, and conversation in the weeks to come. But today, we're just going to get the overview of it so that we can get specific later. So let's start by looking at uh, the people and the entities in the book of Philippians. So who do you think the first person is, just based on the information you see underneath it? Who do you think is the primary participant in Philippians? Jesus. It is! It's Jesus Christ and God the Father. A lot of times people skip over this and immediately get into Paul or Timothy or Epaphroditus or the people of Philippi. But Jesus is actually mentioned more than any other person in this verse. Jesus Christ and God the Father. There are at least 47 direct mentions of Jesus Christ by his name or title in this book. Of those 47, 22 are Jesus, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, or the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just put there for your information. And it's from two words, Yahweh and Yasha, which is really Yeshua, Joshua the Hebrew word Joshua. It means God is salvation or God is deliverance. And it's the human name of God, what we call God. Christ only means the verse just mentions Christ and nothing with it, which is just the word Messiah. And a lot of people don't know this, but or maybe you do, I'm assuming. Where's my marker? 
What's the Greek word for Messiah? Christ. It's Christ. What's the Hebrew word? And what do these words mean? Anointed. It's all the same. To anoint. Yeah, the anointed one. Right? This is interesting to think about, especially if you consider the Old Testament. Uh, did they know that the Christ's name was going to be Jesus in the Old Testament? No. He just they just said the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. So anytime you read the Old Testament and you see the word Messiah, all they're saying is it's going to be the anointed one of God. Who in the Old Testament was anointed? David. Priest. Kings. So more general. Yeah, priests and kings. Anybody else? Prophets. So prophets, priests, and kings were the anointed ones. And who were the prophet? Who 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 were the people who were all three in the Old Testament? Nobody was all. No, he was. Yeah, he was. A, he was two of them. He was two of them. Yeah. So he was a priest and a king. Nobody was. Who's the only prophet, priest, and king? Jesus. Jesus. So that's pretty cool to consider that that word Christ directly and only applies to him because he was the only prophet, priest, and king. He was the only true anointed one of God. So pretty cool to think about. Um, and then God the Father obviously is going to play a big role in this. He gets 22 mentions um, and as in God our Father or God the Father only three times. Alright, so the next big one is who? It's Paul. I always think about you know, if you had a Mount Rushmore of the Bible, who would your four faces be? Don't you have to put Paul on there, or not? Definitely with the New Testament. What do you? Who would your four faces be? Jesus. You can't get away from that. He had a face. New Testament, probably Paul. And he wrote thirteen books. That's a big one. Um, who else? Moses, it's a big one. He wrote Samuel. five books. You say Samuel? Samuel was right up there with David. Samuel over David? David, yeah. It'd be hard to Abraham? Hard to pick on the yeah, it is hard. New Testament, you said John? I did. Yeah, John would have to. I think John has to be up there. Revelation, John, first, second, third, John. Which you do Mount Rushmore? I know. Old Testament, Mount Rushmore, New Testament one. <laughs> Pretty cool to think about, though, just in general. I think Paul would be on that list, and we're going to see why. Because I'll just tell you that once you understand who Paul was and what his global mission was, it's hard to leave him off, and that's going to be a big part of what we're going to focus on this in this study. So Paul was a tent maker. He went from tent maker to missionary author. He was a Pharisee or the Pharisees. What was a Pharisee? Speaker of the law. Yeah, they definitely spoke it. They didn't always do it. Isn't that what Jesus said? Do what these people say, but don't do what they do. Pharisee were the religious elite. They were the legalists. They were the arrogant. They get beat up a lot by Jesus. It's weird to think that Paul was one of those people. And he went from that 
somebody who was so zealous and somebody who was so arrogant that he wanted to go to town, go to from town to town, killing Christians and rounding them up, wrangling them, to the time when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and did a complete 180. Complete 180. He went from Christian murderer to Christian advocate all in one moment. It's pretty cool. We're going to look at that here in just a second. He dedicated his life after that to service, especially to Christ. And he did three missionary journeys, wrote 13 books of the New Testament. He wrote from prison. He was an intense, focused, and qualified individual, as we're going to see here in just a second. He was a tent maker. He made up, where was he from? Tarsus. What's, anybody know any, where is Tarsus? Lebanon. Nope. No. It's East Turkey. Turkey. And it's important, his trade is important because in that area where Tarsus is, there was a, there was flaxseed was one of the crops, and then there was this special goat that had a, a unique type of hair that they used to make the tent coverings. And so it makes sense that somebody from Tarsus, where they had the raw materials and the special goat hair, that they could do, that they could make these tents. He took that up by trade. I mentioned that he was a Pharisee and a persecutor of Christians. And will somebody, let's just all do it. Let's open up to Acts 22. I want you, I'm going read, to read this to you. And I want to think about it. Uh, maybe something that instantly applies to us. Go to Acts 22, verse 6. What is this? Conversion. Yeah, it's his conversion. He says, but it happened that as I was on my way approaching Damascus to wrangle up some Christians, about noontime a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, what was his first question? Who are you? Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I'm Jesus the Nazarene whom you are persecuting. And Paul says, and those who were with me saw the light to be sure, but they didn't understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what's the second question? What shall I do? And the Lord said to me, get up and go into Damascus and there you'll be told all that's been appointed for you to do. Those two questions are the exact same questions that every human being should answer. Who are you, Lord? And what do you want me to do? And nobody did it as quickly as Paul. Paul got it immediately. We're going to see later in chapter 3. He says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was circumcised on the eighth day. Of the, I was of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. Paul was smart. He was educated. As soon as he realized what happened, his life turned immediately, and he went into service for Christ. As soon as he learned who Jesus was, it changed him. Immediately. So much so to where his next question was, what am I going to do? I know who you are. I know what I've done. Now what am I supposed to do? And that's something that we have to answer for ourselves. And this book of Philippians gives us a lot of information towards that question. And I want to ask that of you guys. And something that you should think about is what is your purpose? Paul got it directly from Jesus. From the post-resurrected Jesus, he got his purpose. 
Not just here, but later. Something that I admire the most about Paul, and that we should all admire, is that the rest of his life was de dedicated to his purpose. He knew what he was supposed to do, and then went all in on doing it for the rest of his life. And we're supposed to have that same mindset. That once we understand what our purpose is and what Jesus wants for us, you're called, we're going to see here at the end of this lesson, you're called a saint. You're set apart by God for something. Whether or not you live up to that calling is 100% up to you. Paul lived up to it. All that stuff that I just gave you that list of, he says, I count all that but rubbish. Even though that stuff set me apart and I had a reason to brag in my flesh about who I am and what I did, I count that but rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ. So that's convicting when we consider what Paul's mission was because he had integrity for the rest of his life. Every single thing that he did was put in service towards fulfilling that accomplish in this directive that he got here in Acts. And then we've already mentioned that he was a dedicated and passionate missionary. We'll talk a little about that later. And the author of 13 New Testament epistles, and I have them listed there for you, and they're often characterized as journey, prison, and pastoral epistles. What were the journey epistles? Oh, I have it written for you. They were written while he was on his mission trip. Why was Galatians the first one? That's where he went first. His first missionary was just to Galatia. That's the only place he went. He went through these towns of Lystra and Derby and Iconium and Antioch, Pisidia. And then almost immediately, these foolish Galatians traded in the gospel that Paul gave him for a gospel from somebody else who came in from behind him. And that's what the book of Galatians is about. His second one is really close to Philippi. First and second Thessalonians is a second missionary journey. That's Thessalonica is really close to Philippi. Then on his third missionary journey, he wrote 1 and 2 Corinthians and Rome. Why are these next four called the prison epistles? Yeah, he wrote them while he was in prison. These are, where, do you guys know where he was in prison? Rome. Yeah, he was in Rome. He's, we're going to see here in chapter 1 of Philippians, he was chained to a member of the Praetorian Guard. That's Caesar's Guard. Those are the big dogs. It's the special, it's the elite forces. Paul's chained to them. And he's going to write these four towns from places that he went. And Philippians is one of those. It's pretty cool because he uses a lot of different allegories for him being in prison. He's going to call himself a bond servant. He's going to talk about being chained to the Praetorian Guard. And that because his message through them, the message persisted and perpetuated out. And then why, why are these other three called pastoral epistles? Why did Paul write pastoral epistles? Anybody know? Instructing pastor. That's it. It's for leadership. Timothy's his boy. He's his right-hand man. Timothy's going to play a big role in this. He actually puts a whole section of chapter 2 into Timothy. And he tells us a little about it, his qualities. And we'll see it here in just a second. 2 Timothy's probably one, one of my favorite books of the Bible. Because it's Paul's swan song. He's about to die. He says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. He knows he's about to give it all up. And so he gives his most important message to Timothy, who he wants to carry on his message. He wants his message and the gospel message of Jesus to persist throughout generations. And so he gives Timothy some of the most important information there in that book. So let's look at him. The next one is Timothy. Timothy's a, a key, important figure in this book. He was a faithful companion. He was Paul's mentee. 
Paul brought him alongside in ministry. And that's important. I'm going to say it now. We're going to talk about it all semester. It is important to have someone alongside you in ministry because we're not created to do ministry alone. If we were, I'd have every single spiritual gift. I wouldn't need someone to exhort me. I wouldn't need someone to teach me. I wouldn't need someone to have mercy on me. I wouldn't need somebody to shepherd me. But I don't. So I need all those things. I need people with those gifts, and you do too. And we're not supposed to do ministry alone. The Philippians got that. They participated alongside Paul and Timothy in their ministry. There's a lot written about what the Philippians did to participate, not just in their provisional gifts to Paul, but also how they lived their lives. They bought into the message. We'll see it. So it's pretty cool because uh, Paul actually commends Timothy's mom, Eunice, and his aunt Lois. So we know who his parents were. We don't know who his dad was except for that he was Greek. We know that he was, he was like Paul, but he was both a Jew and he had citizenship. And it's, it, we see here in Acts that Paul picked him up and basically said, if you're going to go with me and you're going to have integrity when we speak to the Jews, I'm going to have to circumcise you. So Timothy bought in. He went right alongside Paul and did what he had to do. Paul, or Timothy, had a great reputation. Paul said that he had a good reputation among the men. And he was faithful, he was trustworthy, and he was obedient. Paul is going to tell the people in Philippi, you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Paul loved him. He poured everything into it. He was the addressee of two Pauline letters. He got his two own letters, including his farewell letter, which we already taught. And then we're going to see that Paul calls him his kindred spirit. He's like, he's like me. He says, I don't have anyone else of kindred spirit who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. So I'm going to send him to you. It's pretty cool. Uh, Timothy was supposed to be an extension of Paul's will. Just like we're supposed to be an extension of Jesus' will. So they set a really good example for people in ministry. And every single one of us are in ministry. Probably my favorite character in this book, who never gets any ink. Nobody ever writes about him. Is a dude named Epaphroditus. Let me spell it out for you. It's E P A P H. Yep. R O D I T E. Raise your hand if you knew that. Be honest. How many of you guys know about Epaphroditus? Epaphroditus is a cool guy. Paul's actually going to say, hold men like him in high regard because he came close to the point of death for the sake of the gospel. He was the letter carrier. He's the guy that took the gift from the Philippians to Paul and then took the letter of Philippians from Paul to them. And while he was serving, he came close to, he came to the point of death. He said, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, so I wouldn't have sorrow upon sorrow. That's what I going to be talked about enough. And I think he would probably like that. I think he would like that. Because I think there's a lot of people in ministry, matter of fact, I think most people in ministry don't want upfront gifts. They want to serve behind the scenes or they want to do stuff that matters without them getting noticed. I think that Epaphroditus is going to have a pretty high place in the kingdom and people like him. That's why Paul says, hold men like him in high regard. 
He worked alongside Paul in ministry. He said, my brother, my fellow worker, and my fellow soldier. That's pretty high praise coming from Paul because he doesn't give high praise to everybody. John Mark bailed on him, and Paul bailed on John Mark after that. Paul doesn't just give praise to anybody. He was the message and gift carrier between Paul and the Philippians. Like we mentioned, he was an example of the type of person who was worthy of respect and admiration. So you can imagine that if Paul said that this is the type of person that's worthy of respect and admiration, it stands in stark contrast to what the world today says that somebody should be respected and admired for. I can't wait to talk about him. And another big thing, he did what other people didn't want to do. We'll talk a little bit about that later as well, but there's a truth in life. I heard someone say one time, in confusion, there's much profit. With him, I would say the opposite of that, or maybe not the opposite, but doing something that other people don't want to do is not only necessary, but it's profitable for the kingdom, for the judgment seat of Christ. It's hard to do that. Let's just be honest. If stuff's easy and stuff is fun, there's no shortage of people trying to find them to do it. You can get better a dime a dozen. Finding the hard stuff that people don't want to do, that takes work, that takes effort, that takes sacrifice, that's hard to do. And Epaphroditus is one of those type of guys. And the last group that I have mentioned is the Philippian people in general. Paul talks about them in the plural a lot. Uh, you can't pick up on it in English, but a lot of times when he says you, really he's saying you all. And so he's talking about them. There weren't just, it wasn't just Epaphroditus. It wasn't just uh, Lydia. It wasn't just the Philippian jailer. It was all of these people in Philippi bought in. They were unified. And Paul is trying to give them next level maturity type of information. Be like-minded, unify is a common theme throughout Philippi, or Philippians. And it's the same thing for us today. We all know that in Hebrews, there's the passage that says, like, newborn babies long for or that's a computer, but he says, uh, everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he's an infant. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern right from wrong. And really what he's talking about there is Christians, mature Christians, don't necessarily choose between good and bad. They choose between better and best. There's a level of spiritual maturity that Paul's focused on with these Philippian people. I have a quote here in just a second from, I think it's Walford, but he talks about these people were already doing it right. He's not admonishing them. He's coaching them up on how to do it even better. And there's a lot of unique things about this book, and that's one of them. The word sin isn't mentioned one time in this book. Not once. There is no reference to the Old Testament in this book, which is also rare for Paul. They got it. They knew the information. He wasn't giving them foundational, basic stuff that they needed. They were already maturing body of believers, and he's trying to get them on to the next step. We'll see it later in chapter 1. Then I have some secondary and tertiary people here. He's going to mention the saints and elders, deacons today. Uh, he mentions Paul's fellow workers. There's these two ladies fighting in the church. This is really the only admonishment that he gives. Euodia and Sintuke. They're evidently not getting along about something. And he starts in chapter 4 by saying, 
hey, you two live in harmony, Lord. And then he tells some people to help him live in harmony. And then some tertiary, or that's just a $5 word for thirdly. Uh, these people out on the periphery a little bit. He mentioned Caesar, the Praetorian Guard. He says, beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. And then there's Philippian opponents, which we're going to cover here in chapter 1. By the way, these are believers. I can't. That's hard for me. That's difficult. But his opponents are actually believers and enemies of the cross of Christ. Then those who walk according to the pattern of Paul and Timothy. He tells them to observe others who walk in the pattern that we give them. He's like, do what they're doing because they're doing what we're doing. Imitate them as, I, as they imitate me and as I imitate Christ. And then noteworthy, some other people in Philippi that we know of from Scripture. Who was Lydia? What's she famous for? Yeah, she sold purple. <laughs> Isn't that funny? She's one of the first converts in town. She was the first European convert. That's a big designation. To say you were the first person in the continent of Europe to believe in Jesus, it's a big deal. It actually says that she was a worshiper of God, so she was a Jew who worshipped Yahweh. She just didn't know about Jesus. Agreed, right? Yep. She's low-hanging fruit for Paul. Because he says, we're in Philippi, and we were suspecting that there would be a place of worship outside of town, so evidently there wasn't a synagogue in town. He goes down to the river, there's these people praying, and Lydia's one of them, and it says that God opened her up to listen to Paul's message, and she believed. And that's important. Why, at least, do you know why purple was a big deal? Anybody know? Is the color of royalty? Is the color of royalty? What were you saying, Spencer? Uh, color of royalty. It's very expensive to yeah. manufacture. It's expensive. Yeah. I think Paul, you think Lydia had money? Something else I didn't tell you about where Philippi was situated. Maybe I get to it in a minute. I don't remember. But there were gold mines near Philippi. They had been exhausted. But there seems to be this idea that there was money there. And even though it's not said directly in Scripture, I think that's why the Holy Spirit took him there. I think Paul needed funding for his ministry. I think Paul had a lot of work to do and a lot of places to go, and he needed people that could fund him, and they participated in that way. And I think Lydia was wealthy and had some wealthy contacts, and that may have been one of the reasons that he was, she was one of the first person he got. That's a great point. I think you're exactly right. The Lord knew what he was doing. There's a reason that the Holy Spirit gave Paul this vision. Paul's trying to go into Galatia. He's trying to go into Asia. The Holy Spirit's saying, no, come over here to Macedonia. I've got some people that you need to know. Because Paul gets in trouble in Philippi. We'll see. He gets in trouble and he needs some contacts. He needs some help. All right, so let's get to some overarching themes. Holy moly, i got to go fast. All right, Paul wrote the book of Philippians to the church that he helped establish in Philippi. It consists of a series of heartfelt prayers and thanksgivings. I have a chart, and I forgot to bring it. But I charted all of Paul's introductions when he wrote to Ephesians, to Philippians, Galatians, Colossians, Corinthians, Romans. They're all pretty much the same, except for this one. There's feeling and there's emotion in it. There's things that he says here that he doesn't say in any of the other ones. It's heartfelt. He loves them. The next one's exhortations. What's an exhortation? That's a fancy Bible word. Nobody talks like that anymore. Can be. That's the positive side. Did you guys know that there's a negative side of exhortation? 
You're going to chew that out, too. Yeah, you can chew, they can exhort people, which is really an admonishment on the negative side, or it's building them up on the positive side. There's lots of that. There's less on the negative and more on the positive here. Warnings in Philippians, he gives some warnings. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, he says. He's going to warn them about coming suffering. Everybody knows the, the famous and conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you remain absent, I'll hear of you that you're standing for in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's famous, but after that, he says, uh, but there's, you're going to have opponents and you're going to have to suffer the way that I suffered. And actually, he says, the way that I'm suffering. We're all going to face opposition. And he warns of that. And the last one's instructions. There's so many famous instructions in this book. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. Um, he tells them, the things that you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Um, do all things without grumbling or disputing. He gives tons of instructions, really practical stuff that helps us. And something that we're going to see is these all play into this. To unity or humility. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, for although he existed in the form of God, didn't regard it a thing to be held onto or grasped, but he emptied himself, he, he humiliated himself. He says, don't do anything from selfish ambition or from empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. There's a ton of practical instructions. And these Philippians, they were faithful to collaborate. They were faithful to participate in what Paul was telling them to do, which was the expansion of the gospel message and to live out their faith, which was a blessing to Paul. Paul actually calls them his glory and his crown. What do you think that means? Why would Paul call someone his glory and his crown? That's a weird thing to say. Why would he say it? Anybody have any ideas? Guesses? Without them, he wouldn't be able to really spread the word to other people, too. So they're kind of helping him do his work by following out what he told them to do. That's a, okay, so you're on to it. That's it. So if they're faithful, if they're faithful to participate, if they're faithful to collaborate with Paul in his ministry, he's successful towards his goal and mission. And what about them? Well, yeah, and also, he's rewarded in, internally for what he did for them, Bingo. and what they do beyond also feeds back to him as well. Kevin, you hit it right on the head. Do you guys ever think about that as a pyramid scheme? <laughs> it's kind of what it is, isn't it? You take what you've taught and you pass it on to other people. Are you, do you get rewards for the good things that you've done in this body, the judgment seat of Christ? Do those things pass on to the people that you taught and that they teach? They're his glory and his crown. They're faithful to participate in his ministry. And because of that, he actually says... Uh, so that I'll have reason to glory in the day of Christ because I didn't run in vain nor toil in vain. He's like, I know, I'm pouring into you guys because you're doing it. I'm not going to cast my pearls before swine. You are faithful men and because you're participating appropriately in the gospel message, I'm going to get rewarded for it. And then he actually humbles himself later in the book and says, not that I seek for the profit myself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. 
He tells them that if they're faithful to what happens to carry out their message, that they're going to be rewarded as well. And who's the ultimate reward? Who does it all? Who, where does the pyramid top? Jesus did all the work. We just get to participate. And that's what he means in Ephesians 2, after he gives the kenosis passage or the emptying passage. He says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, didn't regard his equality with God a thing to be held on to. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of man, just like you and me. And then being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he says, For this reason also, God highly exalted him and gave him a name which is above every name. It's above, it's at the top. So that every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The top of the pyramid is him. But he goes on to say, To the glory of God the Father. So even. What Jesus did was to bring climbing. The top is God. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I agree with that. I just don't think that God. I think God's giving the rewards. <laughs> no, I don't think that either. But yeah, yeah. Because He set all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church, which is His body. So yeah, yeah. But what you're saying is true. It's right. One hundred percent. It's exciting to think about, though. So who's your glory? Who's your crown? It's easy if you have kids. That's the first place you start. Pour into them. Give them the appropriate message. Give them the appropriate truth. And let that persist throughout the generations. Train a child up in the way he will, shall go and what? When he's old, he won't depart from you. Give him the truth. They're your glory and your crown. All right, so the Philippians were faithful to collaborate or to participate in the spread of the gospel. Participation's a theme. It gets, I, I read a ton of these commentaries. Nobody talks about this as a theme. It's a theme. Participation's a big deal in this book. That's what he's writing them for. I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. They're participating because God started that work in him, and at the day of Christ, it will be complete. It will be finished. It will be matured. The work will be done. Participation is a huge deal. In participating with the right motives, is something we'll talk about later, and participating out of humility, all of that stuff matters. So this participation created a certainty and a confidence within Paul's heart for their future and for their work. I put this little note in here just so that you can all read it, but I love it. A portion of the Philippians' involvement collaboration included provisional supply. When I say provisional supply, what am I talking about? Probably money. Could be food, could be clothing, but something. I think it's money. Provisional supply. This provision consists of money, potentially clothing, and other supplies. There is no doubt that Paul specifically had the Philippian church in mind when he mentions the churches of Macedonia. Look at what he says here in 2 Corinthians. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. That in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy. That's a Philippian word. I'm, I'm, I'm calling it. 
of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and even beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the further of what? Participation in the support of the saints. And this, not that we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. They were faithful to participate. I don't have the gift of giving. I wish that I did. I know people who do. But these people in Philippi had the gift. They had the gift of giving. They were giving. doesn't mean that if you don't have the gift, you shouldn't give because you shouldn't. But I love this because he, he, he has the Philippians in mind. And then in the next chapter, does anybody know what 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says? Each one must do just as he has purposed in his own heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for the Lord loves a cheerful giver. That's right after this. He's less than a chapter away when he says that. He's talking about them and he has them in mind. Part of Philippians is a thank you note to the church for that provisional support. It's a thank you note. It's not just a thank you note, but that's the reason he's writing it. Paul is polite. He wrote the best thank you note of all time. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. Even though it's a thank you note, the majority of Paul's message in Philippians was dedicated to encouraging their progressive growth. What's the theological word for that? Yes. He was dedicated to encouraging their sanctification, their progressive growth to spiritual maturity, activity, and like-minded unity. That sounds like you're saying gracious grace. Because it really means the same thing. But he wanted like-minded unity. He wanted them to be of the same mind and of the same spirit based on Christ's humility. Anytime you see unity... In the Bible, you're probably going to see love. But you can't have unity without humility. This is the key. Humility is one of the penultimate things in this book. So among the many sections of practical wisdom, instructions, situational reports, which he gives a pretty long situational report about what's going on with him in prison, and encouragements or warnings about people and groups that oppose the heart of Paul's purpose and message. He desired for the Philippians to continue a faithful life and for them to persevere amidst current and future opposition. Because he was, he was being opposed then by believers and unbelievers, and it was coming again in the future. And he wanted them to fight that by having an appropriate perspective. That's this. What is a perspective? How you see things. Yeah, how you look at things. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this. Are there multiple ways to look at something? Yes. Always. Is there a right way and a wrong way to look at something? Yes. Yes, there is. Today's culture says that that's not true. They say that you can look at something and as long as it's true to you, it's true. And Paul says that our perspective will help you to rejoice regardless of your circumstances. Your contentment, your joy, your happiness, your perspective is all based on, should be based on, your position in Christ. And we'll see that in a little bit. 
selfless attitude. That's a big thing. The first half of chapter 2 is about having a selfless attitude. Don't don't look out for your own personal interests, but also look out for the other interests of others. Then he tells us to have that attitude that Christ had when he humbled himself. And the last thing is an integrity-filled lifestyle. An integrity-filled lifestyle. That word integrity, let me ask you, what does that mean? When I ask people what integrity is, they often give me the definition of character. But they're not the same. What is integrity? Think about, Bernie, you're an engineer. Think about the structure of a building. If that building has integrity, what is integrity? Consistent. Yeah, I would say that that's a big part of it. Hmm? Solid. So what is that? What do you mean by consistent and solid as it applies to Christianity? Fundamental base to everything. Okay. So let me ask you this. Did Paul have integrity towards his purpose? We talked about what was Paul's purpose? What shall I do? He's gonna go to the Gentiles. He's supposed to take the gospel message to the known world the rest of his life because his actions matched what he said he had integrity because his actions matched his purpose he had integrity he was consistent he was solid towards his purpose as Christians we don't have to have integrity but if we don't our message will fail the effectiveness of our message is largely dependent on our integrity our actions have to meet our words, or else nobody's going to listen to us. They won't. Faithfulness? Is that it? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Faithfulness to live out, to do what you know is true, or what you say you believe. You're not saved based on whether or not you do it. You're saved based on your faith in Christ. But you don't have integrity in your belief system if your actions don't meet your words. Yeah? Does everybody agree with that? I would say these are the first thing people go to when they question Christianity too. If they're going to question you as a Christian, I love that. The first thing they go to, almost always. So there's an old DC Talk CD, and before the song starts, it it gives it quotes this old pastor saying, The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and then walk out the door and deny them by their lifestyle. And that's what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. I think you're exactly right. That's what Paul's talking about here. He's not, there's, he's not telling, in, in this book, he's not telling them to have a, how to have eternal life. This is not foundational stuff. He's growing a mature body. He's building this to even greater maturity, to even greater spiritual maturity. And part of that is having an integrity-filled lifestyle. When their words meet their actions, they have integrity. All right, real quickly, how should we characterize the message? We've just said that all these things play into it, so we can answer that next question pretty easily. But Philippians is a book of participation in ministry. That first blank there, all of those verses deal with participation in ministry. When you hear the word fellowship, what do you think of? 
Eating. Eating? That's exactly what I said. I said the exact same thing. I think about going to a Sunday night church service where people may sing and eat and you know play or have games. That's what a lot of people think of when they think about fellowship. That's not what biblical fellowship means. It means participation. When you have fellowship with people, you're participating with them. And that even if, if when you think about having fellowship with God, that's what the implication is. You're participating in his will for your life. That's why when we sin, is sin God's will for your life? The answer is no. You, don't, you can confidently say that God does not want you to sin. So when you sin, what are you out of? You're out of fellowship. You're not participating the way that you're supposed to. So what do we do to get back into fellowship? You confess. You confess. Fellowship is participation. All these verses are participation verses. Look what he says here, that you're standing firm in one spirit. That's you all. You all are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. It's unity, striving together. Striving, you're working, you're doing something together. What is that purpose? It's the faith of the gospel. Still our Bible nails it when it comes to our purpose planning process. I know we teach it a lot, but if our purpose is to make disciples, we should make disciples. If that's our purpose, to fulfill the Great Commission, to take the gospel message to the outer parts of the world, then our actions should meet that purpose. If we want integrity in our message, then we should be doing that. That's what striving together for the faith of the gospel. The next thing is perspective. Paul gives lots of awesome perspective. Some of it turns your world upside down. We'll study it, and it's difficult, but when he says to live is Christ and to die is gain, what? That didn't sound right. To die is gain? He says, you know what, I'd rather go be in the Lord with the Lord because that's very much better. Yet to remain on in this flesh is more necessary for your sake. That's a weird perspective. That doesn't go along with what the world says that we should, how we should look at things. There's lots of cool uh, perspective verses. The one I put here, he says, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's perspective. When you can say that no matter what's going on, I can be content. I can rejoice in my life when there's sickness, when there's death. I lose my job. I have family problems. Somebody's in the hospital. If I'm imprisoned. If I am persecuted because of my beliefs. That's a different level of maturity. That's hard. It's actually supernatural. You can't do it without the power of the Holy Spirit. But yet, for mature Christians, we're called to have that type of perspective. The next thing is humility. The best passage, by the way, in Scripture on humility is this passage that I've listed here. But that's everything. We don't need to read it, but it's talking about Jesus was God, and he existed as God. 
but he gave that up. He didn't look at it as something to hold on to, and he became a dirty, filthy human like you and me. That's humility. And the key to unity is humility. So the next one's unity. Look at all these cool unity phrases. If there's any encouragement in Christ, and there is. If there's any consolation of love, and there is. If there's any fellowship, there's that participation, fellowship of the Spirit. If any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. It's unity. Maintaining the same love. United in spirit, intent on one purpose. The body is most effective, and I would argue only effective, if it's unified in its message. The next one is rejoicing and or perseverance. Rejoicing. Joy and rejoicing is, is another theme in Philippians. Rejoicing in or perseverance amidst opposition regardless of your circumstances. We'll talk about it in that area in two lessons. But Paul actually says it's weird that my whole purpose and goal, that my commission was to take the gospel message and I got thrown in prison. Why did God let me go to prison if I'm supposed to go to the outer parts of the world and give the Gentiles the message? It'd be easy for him to pack it in and say, you know what, forget this. But what does he do while he's in prison? He preaches the gospel message to everybody who's coming in and out of his house, including the Praetorian Guard. And guess what? They all believe. And where did the Praetorian Guard go? Throughout the world. They're kind of forced to, really. They weren't. They were tied to him. He had a captive audience. <laughs> but what if, what if he wouldn't have had integrity towards his mission? What if he would have had a bad attitude? What if his perspective would have gotten off? Even though he didn't, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. For all of us, how hard would it have been to be trapped in prison, chained to these idiots, and having to sit there and not be able to go fulfill the commission that, by the way, you were passionate about, even though it was hard. He gives a list of things that happened. He was shipwrecked. He was beaten. He was stoned. He was snake-bitten. All these things, but yet he did it because it's what he was called to do. And now he's stuck in prison? But he stayed faithful. He persevered. The next thing is encouragement and instruction. Encouragement and instruction. This is a Christian life book. This is not a book for non-believers. It won't make sense to him when he gives those weird perspectives. This isn't for the weak. This isn't for the. This isn't milk. This is solid food type of stuff. It's encouragement and instruction. And these themes are all tied together by love for Jesus Christ and others in order to perpetuate the gospel message. Now, and to that point that I just made, there's that John Walbert quote, because it's directed to those already achieving a high level of Christian experience. It's all the more intimate and relevant to Christians seeking a deeper life. And that should be us. Each one of us should be doing that. I put a list of key verses in there. We don't have time to go over all of them, but they're great. Uh, Let's knock out the geography and location. We're running out of time, and I want to get to it. So 
I'm going to skip down. I put a little paragraph there that you can read about its location and where it's at, uh, some of the geography around it, and some of the history. But it, basically, the city became especially relevant because of its placement directly on the Via Ignatia. You can write that in the next blank. The Via VIA. Via Ignatia. That's the road that it sat on. V-I-A-E-G-N-A-T-I-A. -A. That was a trade route. It would have been heavily traveled. It's how uh, people from the West came to the East. It really was, it's, it's the area that connected Europe and Asia. 700 mile long road that connected the Adriatic Sea to the Black Sea, which allowed for efficient marching, travel, and trade. And some parts that were still there today. Yeah, it's cool. I went on Google Earth and I was looking at it. It's pretty cool. A lot of it's still there. Uh, Philippi has a, they still have a monument up where I think it was like a something to Paul. It's called the St. Paul's, whatever. Still pretty cool. And even though we talked about it, the next one is the Holy Spirit directly intervened. The Holy Spirit directly intervene. I can't beat that home enough. And when God something, wants something done, it's for a reason. You mentioned it earlier, Kevin, but Lydia was the first Christian convert in Europe, and she held the first Christian gatherings in Philippi in her home. And because of that, over time, the church at Philippi faithfully provided means for Paul's ministry as opportunities arose. You can see the map there of his second missionary journey. If you look at the very top there, the top left-hand corner, you see Macedonia. That's where Philippi and Thessalonica are. So you can see how far he traveled there from Turkey and East Turkey, from Southeast Turkey and in Tarsus. He started out in Antioch there in Syria. He traveled all the way over. He went up through Northern Asia because the Spirit wasn't allowing him to go south. He wanted to go Northeast to Galatia. God said no. He wanted to go into Asia, and God said, no, you're going to go over here to Macedonia. So you can use that as a reference to kind of see his whole second missionary journey. Okay, time frame, just really quickly. We have five minutes, so I'm going to knock this next few parts out. Paul wrote Philippians during his first imprisonment in Rome, circa 60 to 62 A.D. 60 to 62 A.D. So how long after Jesus is this? 30 years. About 30 years. Still relatively new. He's building the churches. He's going around his missionary journeys. He's in prison now. All these churches that he's established in uh, Ephesus, in Colossae, in Philippians, and he writes Philippians all during this time while he's in prison. And again, you can kind of see here at the end, I talked a little bit, but he writes, he says, you yourself also know Philippians, after the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. Nobody else was doing it. That's why I think he was sent. Nobody else was supporting him. No church, mattered, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift for my needs more than once. Now, over 10 years later, after this, uh, his initial visit, 
1551, he's writing them back from prison. And it sounds like there was a lapse in their giving. Because in chapter 4, he's going to tell them, I'm encouraged that at last you've revived your concern for me. So, I think they gave. I think, I think they gave, and then uh, they ran out. Because he says, not that, he said, you lacked opportunities when you tell them. He says, I know that you guys lacked opportunities. So I think they could basically gave them all they had. Well, he was in prison in Caesarea for a couple of years or so. He was kind of out of pocket for quite a while. So they could have lost track of him. Yeah. Go. Okay, I have some things about the Great Fire. So the Great Fire in Rome happened in 64 AD, which is four years after he writes this. That's when Nero lights it up, blames it on the Christians, and starts killing them and persecuting them. So at the end of chapter 1, when he tells them that they're going to suffer, I don't think they understood how imminent that meant. Because they're in a Roman colony under Roman rule, and the Christians are going to start getting persecuted. So that's a big deal. But that's a conversation for a different time. So now we can get into it. We're going to cover the first two verses really quickly. He says, Paul and Timothy bond servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You wanted to make sure that... That's almost like a joke. Yeah, I'm not leaving you out leadership. Even the even the overseers yeah. and deacons are considered saints. <laughs> That's a good point. Hey, greetings to all you saints. Overseers, deacon. (laughs) (laughs) So he starts out, something I wanted to pull out again. He says, Paul and Timothy. Paul's obviously writing, probably with the help of Timothy. But again, I need to stress that one of the major themes in in Philippians is participation. Paul had help. He had somebody alongside him in ministry. We're in it together. We're not designed to do it alone. Paul, or not Paul, JB, he's like Paul. (laughs) JB always talks about there should be a Paul, a Timothy, and a Barnabas. There should be somebody who is alongside you in ministry, and then somebody who's an encourager to you, and then you should have a Paul for yourself. Somebody who you're participating with, somebody who's participating with you, and somebody who's encouraging you in that participation because we need all that stuff. And that was who Timothy was. So I know for those of you who were at Sunday school a couple weeks ago, we talked about this, but so it may be near and dear, but what is a bondservant? He says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. Willing servants? Yeah, that's actually a great way to say it. She said, Paige said, a willing servant. That's very true. It's not just a slave. It's somebody who's a willing slave. A bond servant is someone who does the will, will, sorry, not the wheel, the will of their master. A bond servant is someone who does the will of their master. Who is Paul and Timothy's master? Jesus. Jesus. And what is his will for them? Because you can't talk about a bond servant without talking about what the master's will is. Spread the gospel. To spread the gospel. 
Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus. He's reminding him again. It's also a little bit of a play on words since he's where? In prison. He's saying, I'm not chained by them. I'm a bond servant of Christ. No matter where I'm at, no matter what's going on, regardless of my circumstances, I'm going to maintain a proper respect. This is a play on words. So you can write down what we just talked about and what might... Paul and Timothy, how might they be characterized as bond servants? Because they're doing the will of their master Jesus by taking the gospel message to the world. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus, to all of the saints who are in Christ Jesus. What in the world is a saint? Don't you have to do so many good deeds before you can be a saint? Even after you're dead. Right. You get that pyramid scheme right. But seriously, what is a saint? It's everybody who believes in Christ. A saint is any believer. Did you guys know that? Isn't that weird? Based on culture and society, a saint has to do so many good deeds and you can be, you can be sainted. All you have to do to be sainted is believe in Jesus. So anytime you see this little Alpha and Omega, that's, we're going to talk about a Greek word. And there'll be at least one of these every, every, every week. So the Greek word there is hagios, and the reason I wanted to focus on it, uh, it has the idea of being set apart or different. Um, it's the root word to that $5 theological word. What was that word? Sanctification. Philippians is a book that pertains to your sanctification. That's a big word that's hard to grasp. Because what is your sanctification? If we see here that the word is to be set apart, to become more Christ like. Okay? For who to become more Christ like? Each one. Believers. For believers to become more Christ like. How do we do that? Effort. Growing Christ. Bingo, bingo. Effort by growing in Christ. We grow in Christ through our effort. So is it fair to say that it's progressive? Yes. That you're supposed to grow more and more, be more and more conformed to the image of Christ? Who decides that? I think so. I think if you want to get deep, you can make a you can make a play that's by God's it's in God's power. It's because of the talent that he gives you or the abilities that he gives you but it's it comes down to whether or not you're going to put into service what he's given you to do whether or not you're going to have integrity whether or not you're going to walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called it all comes down to what are you going to do who what is the what is the what do you have to do before you can be sanctified justified you have to be justified who justifies you that's dependent on God. You're declared righteous. Justification means to be declared righteous by God, because of God. He does all the work in that. We do all the work in this. And so I wanted to pull this word out because these are saints. They're called apart. They're set apart. Can you think about anything in the Old Testament law that was set apart? What was consecrated in the temple? What was set apart? All the utensils? 
all the stuff that they had to have in the law, all that stuff had to be sanctified. It had to be set apart. All the stuff that was used for service in the temple had to be consecrated. It was stuff that was set apart. It was stuff declared holy by God to be put into service. You and I are those tools. We're supposed to be consecrated. We're supposed to be set apart. We're not supposed to look like the world. So all believers are saints. They're set apart by God. Uh, J. Vernon McGee always cracks me up. He says, every believer is a saint. Oh, I want to read this. He says, every believer is a saint. In fact, the human family is divided up in just two groups, saints and ain'ts. You're either a saint or you ain't. It's one or the other. I love that. So belief in and of itself denotes sainthood. What about mediocrity? Belief in? Belief in Jesus. Yeah. Belief in Christ as your Savior. That justifies you. So you're justified before God based on your faith. So. It's positional and not experiential. To all the saints in Christ, positional, exactly what you're saying. So ask your question again. Well, he says every believer is a saint. That's correct. But aren't there several believers who live in mediocrity? Yes, there are. Are they saints? Yes. They're mediocre ones. <laughs> <laughs> I, would, I would say... They live in the state of mediocre. Yeah, yeah. That's so, exactly right. So do but you they think are still saints. Still saints. Okay. Yep. This is, we throw the word saint around. That's exactly right. As somebody who's perfect. Right. And it's not... And it's not that. Except for in your position, you're perfect. Yeah. You have the righteousness of God in your position. When you stand before Jesus Christ, Paul's going to talk a lot about his glory at the day of Christ. The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. Even though everybody's equal in position, meaning that they have the righteousness of God, but to the one who doesn't work, but believes, his faith is credited as righteousness. They have the righteousness of God even though they don't do anything, even though they're mediocre. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. So we're saints. We're justified and we have peace with God. But not everybody who stands before him with the judgment seat of Christ is going to get the same reward. A good example of that is at First Corinthians 3. He says, your works are going to be judged. Some people, your works are going to be wood, hay, straw, and stubble, and they're going to get burnt up. But people whose works are the good works, the precious gems, that stuff's going to persist even through fire and there won't be a loss of reward. Those are going to be, not everybody's going to get the same experience of the judgment seat of Christ. And you don't want to be at the great white throne judgment. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, the summary's long. You can read it. Um, it's just going to cover everything that we just covered all the highlights. But I know Buddy and Barb are going to ask about the test, so we have to get to the test. Uh, So we're going to call the application, I love that Paul says to work out your own salvation in this book. So we're going to call the application for this series living and working it out. We're going to work out our salvation. We're going to live it out. So here's some application. Read Philippians and Acts 16. It's only 104 verses. It's not hard. You guys can knock that out pretty quickly this week. Read Philippians at least once. And read Acts 16. 
Get some perspective on what Paul went through. Know Paul's story? That's a pretty good application. Paul's story is amazing. He gives three accounts of his conversion just in Acts. I put them in your sheet if you want to go back and look at it under the Paul tab. Look for the themes in Philippians, all these things. As you read those 104 verses, look, find the participation, the encouragement, the joy, the perspective, all that stuff. It's all there. Consider whether or not you're a bondservant of Christ. Measure up. Work out your own salvation. You're saved, now go live it out. If you do that with integrity, you're a bondservant. Realize your position in Christ. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. You have the righteousness of God. The bonds of the flesh are broken. You no longer have to submit to your flesh. You have the power of the Holy Spirit. You can submit your bodies or the members of your bodies as instruments of righteousness to God. That's the temple. Consecrate. You're sanctified. Put your instruments in service to God. That's what he says in Romans 6. All right, so let's talk about the test next week. I'm going to ask you on the test, and it's just going to be an honor system. Read the book of Philippians three times. That's not hard. That's two chapters a day. You can do that. Read the book of Philippians three times. Know who wrote Philippians. Who wrote it? Say it. Paul. Who carried it? That's my boy. Be able to identify three of the main themes in Philippians. Really, the unity perspective. Yeah, those would be three great ones. Know from where Paul wrote to Philippi. Where was he? Yeah, you'll know all of these, by the way, if you do the first one. If you read the book of Philippians three times, you'll know all these things. Know where you can read about Paul's trip to Philippi. 16. Know when Paul visited Philippi and when he wrote the letter. We didn't cover the timeline all the way, but you can go back and look at your sheet. 80, 60, he wrote it? 62? He visited in 50, 51? Be able to divine a bond servant. What's a bond servant? Someone who does the of their master. And then be able to define a saint. What's a saint? It's a believer. That's right. You're either a saint or you ain't. I'll give I'll give you bonus points if you say it that way, Barbara. <laughs> all right. I'm, they won't all be this long. I swear. This one had a ton of information. We'll get out of here quick. Brandy said, "Don't do it long. Nobody's gonna come back." And I went. Uh, let's pray, and then we'll get. Thanks again for joining us for True to the Bible podcast with Hunter Davis. If you enjoyed this lesson, make sure you subscribe so you can hear the rest of the lessons on True to the Bible podcast. And if you have any questions regarding this lesson or any of the other lessons, make sure you contact us at hunter.davis at stillwaterbible.org. Thanks again for joining us.